Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. If you're looking to put a smile on the face of seven-time champion Richard Petty, just mention the number 67. He'll immediately know what you're talking about. It's actually 1967, that magical year when he and Petty Enterprises set the record book on fire. Okay, let's be a little more accurate. That's the year they blew the record book completely apart with 27 victories and 48 starts. And 10 of those wins came consecutively from August 12th at Bowman Gray Stadium in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, to October 1st in North Wilkesboro Speedway. If you were to share a soft drink with the king today and ask, so what's the key to all those great victories? Well, he might be a bit hard-pressed to tell you. It may have something to do with a voodoo doll with a straight pin, tossing salt over his left shoulder, walking backwards seven steps and saying, amen. Walking out the same door he came in, you get the picture. In other words, no one is completely sure why they ran so good. What they do know is that it was an incredibly magical season where everything went right. Even when things were going wrong, they seemed to go right. Such as the times when crew chief Dale Lindman needed a caution and there it was. Or when tires blew as Richard was coming down pit road to make a pit stop. I kid you not. But when engines held up better than those of his closest competitors, they, they blew and Richard's engines didn't blow. Engine rocker arms that didn't break of the engines that Maurice Petty built. Crashes were, for the most part, in Richard's rearview mirror. Crew members performed flawlessly during pit stops time after time after time. The sun felt warmer. The water tasted colder. That Petty blue paint scheme on their Plymouth shine brighter. Nothing, and I mean nothing, could go wrong. Okay, for those that look at the glass half empty... They lost 21 races, but still recorded 38 top fives and 40 top tens, and also recorded 19 pole positions. All in all, Petty only failed to finish eight of 48 races that year. Considering the fact that so many things can go wrong while totally punishing a race car every way imaginable for 500 miles at top speeds for hours at a time inside and out, that's a pretty impressive record. And it says a lot for the handful of crew members that worked on the car and then hauled it all around the country to speedways north, south, east, and west and put it up against the very best in the business from November of 1966 through November of 1967. For the Petties, the 1967 season was the absolute very best in NASCAR history, and it's still a mystery as to why. Welcome, everyone, to A Lifetime in NASCAR, episode 67. Uh, 
different voice perhaps in your speakers, in your ear today. Uh, my name is Eric Estep. Uh, I'm filling in for the great Jerry Bonkowski, but I am joined as always by the one and only Ben White. Ben, it's always great to to record these episodes with you. I think this is my second or third time now on the show, but my goodness, you guys are already more than 60 episodes in. This is kind of the lost episode 67, but I know we have a lot of uh, very interesting stuff to talk about today. It's great to see you. Well, good uh, to see you, Eric. Thank you. And uh, yeah, number 67. Wow, it's been a long, uh, long time uh, in starting these. And, uh, you know, as I've heard people say, as the older you get, the time goes by fast. And boy, it sure has <laughs> for me anyway, for sure. Good to have you on the show today. It's great. Yeah, it's great. And of course, Jerry will be back uh, for the next episode, episode, I believe he'll be on 69 then. Yes. Uh, right now he's traveling to or from uh, his daughter's wedding. So wishing uh, him and his entire family the very best. That's very exciting stuff. Good to, good scheduling too. It's the off weekend for the, the current NASCAR Cup Series season. So it uh, works out greatly. But we're not here to talk about the current NASCAR Cup Series season. Uh, ben, we are going way back in time to uh, 1967. It's episode 67. We always theme these episodes around a specific car number, but this time we're changing speed a little and focusing on one of the, uh, probably the greatest individual NASCAR season, at least from a performance standpoint, in the history of the sport. Richard Petty in 1967 won 27 out of 48 races that he started that year, including 10 wins in a row. There's a lot we can unpack. I know you've recently sat down and actually talked to the king himself, Richard Petty, uh, for a, a late, a recent issue of NASCAR Pole Position. So I know you'll have a lot to, to speak on this. But just to kick things off, introduce, I know you already did during your little preamble, but introduce this season. How incredible were these numbers that the 43 team put up that year? Well, extremely incredible, Eric, because uh, looking back at 1966, I mean, it was a good season for the Petties and Petty Enterprises, but it wasn't anything to write home about. I mean, they had some good good wins that year and good good runs. But so let's go back to January of 67. And, okay, we're going to get back into another season. We're looking forward to it. Everything's going to be great. And they ran a couple of races uh, going into 67. And... Uh, you know, all, all is well. Everything seems good. And so they go uh, to Augusta. Matter of fact, they start off the season by winning at Augusta, which is a road course there. Richard did. And uh, he started third, finished his first. Okay, great. Then they go to a second road course, which was Riverside, California. Uh, he finishes 21st there. And then they go to the Daytona 500. He starts on the pole and finishes fifth. So I, actually, they in those days, what you would do is you'd have a qualifying race, and then of course they would count those as as regular wins. But in those days, this is what would be the equivalent of today's 150s, and they don't count those as normal races or, or wins in your win column now. So you get into the Daytona 500. Uh, he starts second, finishes eighth. So they come back home, and he he talks to crew chief Dale Edmond and says, "Well, you know things are okay, but." This is a 67 Plymouth, and I'm not super happy with it. And his quote to me the other day when we talked to a month or six weeks ago was, the car, the 67 Plymouth, quote, didn't have a good personality. Hmm. Meaning he got in the car, he just he didn't feel right about it. It was okay, and they did all right at Augusta with it, but it, he just didn't, he said, I just didn't like the car. I didn't like what, how it felt. It didn't, something about it didn't feel good to me. So the 66 Plymouth that they had run, 
they brought it back into the main shop and basically upgraded it from a 66 to a 67 by putting a new grill in it and doing a few little minor upgrades to this car. And so wham, bam. I mean, this suddenly this car sets the world on fire and they run. I get this. This is what really blows me away, Eric. This car, they ran it in 46 of 48 races. The same car. The same car. car. Wow. Now, the majority of these races that year were short tracks. And so so what they do is they, all right, so they, they run this car and they just suddenly, I mean, they, they go to Weaver, Asheville, Weaverville Speedway after Daytona and they win with it. Okay. So, well, they go to Bristol, not so hot, 34th. Go to Greenville, 19th. Go to Winston-Salem, which is bowling great. They finish second pretty good atlanta they go with the same car 22nd and then they go to columbia south carolina which is a short track they win they go to hickory short track they win north worksburg they finish seventh and then they go to martinsville it's sort of like a a feast and famine sort of thing they go to savannah finish second richmond they win darlington they take the same car this is the april race at darlington they win beltsville maryland they finish second. Hampton, Virginia, they win. Charlotte, they take it there to the Charlotte Motor Speedway, finish fourth. Asheville, third. Macon, they win. Maryland, or I'm sorry, Maryville, uh, Tennessee, they win. They're back to Birmingham, they're third. Rockingham, they win. Greenville, they win. I mean, it's one of those deals where... The car where got better as the season went along, or maybe they got a did. better handle of it. I don't know. It did. Right. And so we were talking about this, you and I, a little bit ago, and it's like, okay, so how do you do this? It just blows my mind. How do you do this with a car, a single car, and you take it everywhere, all these super speedways and short tracks, you take it somewhere, it gets a little dinged up, banged up bit. So you fix the body, you take off the parts, you put on new parts, and you take it to the next race. I mean, you wouldn't dream of doing something like that in today's world. And you fix it, you repair it, you you check every nut and bolt on this car, and you take it again. And lo and behold, it wins again. And and but see what is so so interesting about this story is if you again, if you asked Richard Petty, and I did, I said, what was the key? And he looked at me. He didn't have on sunglasses that day, which is actually kind of surprising to me. We were sitting <laughs> in a conference room. We were talking about this. He still had on the hat, but not the sunglasses. And he just looked at me and said, he said, Ben, I can't tell you. Or he said, Bud. He actually calls me Bud. He said, Bud, I can't tell you. He said, we just, everywhere we went with that car, it just, it was magic. He said, because we'd look at each other and say, and we'd get down to the last couple of laps of the race and, you know, here's the checker flag again. And Dale Inman would look at his brother Maurice and they just shake their heads. And they, and Maurice had even told me once, he said, we'd go in the house after we got back and tell our wives, Oh, guess what? We won again. <laughs> oh, and, and they're just nonchalantly. How'd you do? Oh, we won again. They were, what I'm saying is they were so surprised at how well this car did that they didn't know how to answer the questions anymore. They just did what they routinely would do. And then they would go out and it would just win. It was like that special magical thing that that they were almost afraid to say anything to one another for fear that it would jinx it, you know? Yeah. And so 
it's and I get coaches talking about this even now because it was like this magical special piece of machinery they didn't want to talk too loud around it even they said they just didn't want to talk about the success they were having they was let's just go see what happens and that's what they did and it was just so amazing I'm curious, and I have no idea if you know the answer to this, but this is a 1966 Plymouth. They kind of outfitted for 1967. Did they ever use that car again after that season? No, they didn't because they went to a 68 Plymouth Roadrunner the next year. Mm-hmm. And it was because Chrysler wanted to upgrade it to the new car that was going to be debuted on the showroom floor the next year. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this car a lot. You, you could actually go to the NASCAR Hall of Fame and see it. Actually, I take that back. Now, and and as as I said that, I knew I was wrong. Actually, the car is at Petty Enterprises in their museum now. Hmm. It was at the Hall of Fame for many years, but now actually that's where it sits. And but it's the same car, and there's photos of it out there. Uh, Max, matter of fact, recently on uh, in the Out of the Group website, I I used the photo for the Petty Blue story. That's another interesting story of how they came up with Petty Blue, but it was used but it's the exact car and richard drove it at darlington a few years back on the pace laps but it's the exact same car and they uh uh that's that's the car they won all those races with but it's in the uh the petty museum there at the old level across petty what was petty enterprises and that's petty's garage but it's the same car gosh yeah well, amazing car I, I could probably still win a race today i would i don't know but yeah I, it sure uh, could it's bulletproof yeah. 27 wins in 48 starts uh i just you cannot fathom obviously they don't run 48 races now but you can't fathom someone winning more than half the races today i mean there's has not been a season like that 1967 since and, and i don't know that there ever will be i mean you look you kind of just highlighted a lot of the, the big key races but they took that same car and won twice at Martinsville that year, a little half mile track, all sorts of other short tracks. But you said they could go to Darlington. They won at Darlington twice that yeah. year. Like, yeah, they did. So versatile, which, you know, obviously today teams have fleets of race cars. And actually with the next gen, it's a little less than it was even a few years ago. But they still have fleets of cars that are dedicated to each type of track. And I don't know about in the 60s. I assume most teams were working with much smaller fleets and groups of cars, but it has to have been unheard of for a championship contender to just run the same car week in, week out, even at the time, right? Yeah, it, it was. And and again, to sort of paint you a picture of how they used to do this, they would uh, pretty much strip the car when it came in. They would take the rear end out, the rear end housing out. And, and you say rear end, you think rear end of the body. No, what I'm saying is the rear end housing under the car Mm-hmm. And that that housing would tie into the drive shaft, and there's a special gear that you would run, whether it be Darlington or whether it be Martinsville or wherever the case is, depending on the size of the track. They take the engine out, uh, the front suspension off the car, and they would just basically all you would see there would be a shell. Uh, they wouldn't take the seat out probably because that's the way he wanted it to be adjusted and those types of things, maybe even the gauges. They just strip the car down as much as they could. They take the car to the body shop. And then they would repair the body all the way around and then repaint the body, repaint whatever needed to be done, fix the bumpers, et cetera. And then they roll the thing back into the main shop area and they just refurbish the car. They put new, new rear end, new suspension parts, new gauges, new, whatever, new engine. Of course, Maurice Petty, his brother would build all the engines and then re-decal the car which back in those days you had the petty blue which was a solid card uh color 
and then they would just put the vinyl decals back on the car and then tighten up every nut and bolt. Dale Inman was so particular about making sure that every nut and bolt was tight on that car. And he would spend hours on it, just going it around himself. with a socket wrench, <laughs> just making sure because those little things were so, so important to make sure you didn't fall out of a race. But the second part of this story is this, is that, you know, that particular, you know, you'd see teams, uh, for instance, like the, I, I revert this back to say the Miami Dolphins of 1972. They won every, every game. I start to say every race, every game they mm-hmm. hear, and they, they had the perfect season. Well, this is kind of like what it was for the Petties. There were times that Petty would come down pit road and they needed tires. If he had stayed on the lap one more, one more lap or on the racetrack, one more lap, he'd have blown a tire, but the tire blows on pit road. As okay. they're going, yeah, lose no time. Lose no time. And he would see the cra- the big crash in his rear view mirror that he was just there 10 seconds earlier. And, you know, those types of things where everything, they couldn't lose. They couldn't do anything wrong. Now, there were times, right, that they had uh, 21 races that they didn't win out of that season. But the the, the majority of, of the, the race... Uh, season was in their favor, but I want to read you some stats here that backs this up. Go which for is it. Amazing. 27 wins, 38 top fives, 40 top tens, but the average start in 48 uh, races that year, 2.4 huh. average finish 5.0 average the, the top five. <laughs> right. Right. And then the, the win average of that, of course, was 56.3%. Okay, so over half the races that he entered, you know, that he was going to win. Top five, 79.2%. Top 10 was 83.3%. So, I mean, it's like you couldn't ask for really for a better season. Of course, you, you know, sure, you could have had more wins, but let's take that one step further. So, from uh, August 12th of that year, he wins at Winston-Salem, which is Bowman Gray. Columbia, these are all consecutive victories now, 10 in a row. Columbia, Savannah, Darlington, which is a, a super speedway. He wins the Southern 500 that year. Hickory, which is a short track. Richmond then was a fairgrounds raceway. It's now a super speedway because it was re- redone in 1989. And then he wins at Beltsville, Maryland, Hillsboro, Martinsville. In North Wilkesboro. So there were 10 in a row that he wins. And again, I mean, they're just as baffled as we are that year. That's what was so amazing. Yeah. Richard said it, Dale Inman said it, and Maurice Petty said it. We didn't know why we were doing so well, but we, we were so scared to say, hey, we're doing so great. We were so afraid to say that well, because that- if once we said it, it was gonna it was gonna jinx the entire season. So they would walk around the shop and they were not. We wouldn't talk to each other. They were so afraid to say the wrong <laughs> words. They wouldn't say anything to each other other than what are you go, where are you going for lunch? You know, that kind of thing. Or did you bring your lunch today? It, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is the truth. They were just so scared to talk to each other about the car. I've been that way. I wear like the same t-shirt uh, every Sunday back when, you know, Matt Kenseth was racing because I wanted as good luck. <laughs> we're all superstitious or at least, you know, a little, right. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, you know, I use the word amazing. And it truly, I can't think of a better way because think about this. You had in those days, you had, well, 36 to 40 cars, depending on where you're racing. Now, 
looking at the from this angle, you have a football, a baseball, a basketball, you have a hoop or a field. I've used this analogy before. Okay, uh, other than the football going flat or the the basketball rim falling off the backboard, okay, there's there's could happen, I guess. But in a race car, you've got so many things that can go wrong, not only in your car, but you could be taken out by one, two, three other cars on the racetrack every time you go around that track and complete a lap. So you've got so many odds against you. And to think that this team completed all those wins in 10 in a row. And back then, you know, when you had 48 races, not 36 races as we do today, or not 29 races as they did so many years. I mean, all the time, all the things that could go wrong in a season and to think they had that much success, it, it just blows my mind. It's, it's remarkable what they what they were able to accomplish. It really was. And it's remarkable because it was a, a fairly small core group there at Penny Enterprises that were working on that car on a regular, I was going to say weekly basis, but you know, with 48 races, I mean, there were some weeks they had more than one race that they had to make sure the car was suited up for, make sure it was repaired. But uh, how many, it was roughly eight, eight people full-time yeah. working on that car on a regular basis yeah there were and you know today we see 350 or to 500 <laughs> people working for a race team. i realize there's several race teams within but in those days no you didn't have any more than seven eight people and those same seven eight people would work on the car during the week and then they would pit the car on sundays and i mean you're talking about work 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 and uh you know and they weren't making but 225 250 an hour and i mean just not making anything but they loved racing and they had it for the you know the joy and the passion of racing and when you work for say petty enterprises in those days or junior johnson associates or or any of the top teams i mean you are pretty much a jack of all trades and even to the point of driving the truck to the track and and driving the truck home from the track even I've, I've heard of even some of the drivers would drive 500 miles and then help pack the truck and then they would drive the truck home after 500 miles and they, these guys were iron men you know in those days because they, there was just no help and there was no money to pay help and so yeah they hard work i guess is the best two words to describe being on a race team in those days yeah, I actually want to go back for a second to uh, the point you're making or, or joking about how they didn't want to even talk about the car. They didn't want to say anything that might, you know, jinx them or you know, a little superstitious there. But like, like that's not obviously an exact science. But one thing that would be exact is like back in those days, how frequently did NASCAR or officials you know, maybe vet a car like that who said, you know, this guy's won 27 or, you know, he's won 20 of the first 30 races, something like won 10 in a row. At what point did, did or did not, did NASCAR start to scrutinize a team specifically? Like, hey, you guys have won a lot of races. There's go, You may not know what you're doing, but we're going to find something that you're doing and, and see <laughs> yeah, if we can they, poke holes in it. Did that ever come yeah, they up? they did. They did a lot. And they they kept taking the car apart. They kept looking at it. They kept pulling engines and, and, and inspecting this little number 43 Belvedere uh, Plymouth. And they couldn't find anything because there's nothing to find. They, wow. There really weren't any tricks to the car. It was preparation back in the level cross is what it was. They just kept uh, building really good engines. Maurice Petty could find horsepower in those engines better than anybody. And back matter of fact back in those days two of the really best engine builders 
was Waddell Wilson with Home and Moody and Maurice Petty. And I've even heard Waddell say that you would get to Daytona and you would hear that 43 car crank up, you know, and it would sound perfect like a symphony. And he's like, holy crap, there's no way we can, we can build, you know, we can compete with that. And Waddell is like, you know, how in the world is he finding what he's finding? And then you get out on the racetrack and they would turn incredibly fast laps of those petty engines. And, you know, Waddell would say, I'm just envious of the guy. He was so good at building engines and they were great, tight, perfect engines. They didn't break rocker arms. They didn't break uh, anything. They were, he was just super good at it. And uh, that was uh, the main part. It was so like a, a, a trifecta, if you will. You had Richard behind the wheel. You had Maurice building the engines and you had Dale Inman, who was a stickler for every nut and bolt being really tight. And the thing I've heard Kyle Petty say when Kyle was working for them as a teenager, Dale was so adamant about every screw head being turned the same way. In other words, mm -hmm. he gets so ticked about Kyle would be working there as a teenager. He'd say, Kyle, come here, come over here. I want to show you something. He said, all these screw heads have to be turned exactly the same way. You're either going to put them up straight up or sideways, but they can't be both. <laughs> and that was how meticulous he was about his race cars. They were pretty, really perfect, beautiful race cars, but they had to be perfect. And that's what made a winning race car. And they learned that in 67 because anything left undone was going to be the difference between winning a race and losing a race. And they learned that from Lee Petty because Lee was mm -hmm. one of the very first guys who uh, made a living from racing. And to be able to do that, you had to win. Because if you didn't win, you didn't eat in those days. And so that's where that mentality came from. And so he learned it from Lee. And he was just a great crew chief, but also a great car builder. And it showed to the maximum uh, when you, you know, during the 67 season when, they, when everything came together. But it, it surprised everyone how well it was going. And they knew it had to come to an end at some point, and it did towards the end of the season. But they did uh, go on and win a championship, of course, from it. But it, you know, the, it was just a sweet little engine that could, if you want to put it that way. And and they just were so careful not to do anything to jinx their efforts, you know. And and a lot of one more thing, real quick, Aaron. A lot of the, a lot of the uh, people in that era were very uh, superstitious about peanuts and no green shirts and no green <laughs> rags and those types of things. So they, yeah. they were very careful about not doing that either because that was a definite no-no in a garage area in those days. Well, I, again, I, we keep harping on the stats, but they're just so remarkable. He had 27 wins. Petty did. Um, the next most wins by a driver that year was Bobby Allison, of course, another eventual NASCAR Hall of Famer, but he only won six. So <laughs> when you're smoking oh. the field by that much, it's it, it's remarkable. And I want to get back to something you, you just mentioned. But yeah, Lee Petty um, was really the first to make a living as a race car driver. And in 1967, the idea of like a full-time working race car driver that's how you put food on the table was still i guess fairly new it was becoming more of a common thing and 
we look at these car counts in uh, in the 1967 season. I believe it peaked that year at the Daytona 500. Of course, I think they had 50 entries. I looked this up, but some short track races had as few as like 16 or 18, like midway through the season. So yeah. a huge disparity sometimes week to week. So back in those days, you had the Bobby Allisons, uh, David Pearson made some starts that year. Obviously, you have Richard Petty. Like, how many drivers do you think around that era were really? able to go and, and do this full-time the way the Petty family had kind of managed to? Um, that's a great question, Eric. And I I want to say, I mean, in all honesty, maybe seven, maybe 70% of them, but there were some that couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And because the, the purses in those days were not as obviously as high as they were today or are today. But I mean, you know, it's relative to what the economies and all that were in those sure, days too. adjusted for inflation yeah. right exactly and but here's another part of the equation also and i take nothing away from the petties either when i say this i mean you know they pretty much had an open checkbook from from chrysler and plymouth too mm-hmm. they could build and have the best parts for a lot of the guys out there didn't now you had the front runners in those days you might have 10 teams that were legitimate race winners the others weren't. I mean, you might have 20 cars in the field that, okay, maybe let's not go that far. Maybe 15, I mean, really on a good day, could maybe win, maybe 12. But you, it's they didn't have, uh, in those days, the, the entire field that could win races. But the Petties were blessed with the backing of Chrysler and Plymouth in that era. Um, and so, yeah, they, they had pretty much anything they needed um to win races of course they had good sponsorships but they didn't have the the real big sponsorships until about 71 or 72 when when stp and some of the bigger ones came Mm -hmm. in stp was a long time sponsor of the petties and i think they may even have associate sponsorships even today but but a lot of those sponsorships in those days uh for the back runners were local sponsorships some the wood brothers the petties allison uh you know had some of the the major sponsorships that you would see national sponsorships. But uh, even so, you still have to survive on the short tracks. You still have to be able to get through those 400 laps at Wilkesboro, the four or 500 laps at Martinsville, the tough races at Bristol, 500 laps. And even at Dover, they used to believe it or not, they used to run 500 laps at Dover. That's 500 <laughs> laps of one mile. And, you know, those are long, long races. Wow. And your engines and, of course, your equipment, your tires and all that had to hold up all those races. And uh, so, yeah, you still had to build your cars to be able to put up with the punishment of of having those long three and four hour races. And, of course, Darlington is a race in itself, which is such a tough racetrack for the April Rebel races. And then, of course, the Southern 500s uh, and those heat, 95 and 98 degree heat. You know, in, in the on Labor Day, they used to run the Southern 500 on Monday because it was Labor Day Monday. Hmm. Did that for years and years. I didn't know. So, yeah, it, it, you had to be prepared is what I'm saying in a long-winded way. You had to be prepared for those long races. And uh, But no matter how much sponsorship you had, you had to build a really bulletproof car. And 67 was the prime example of how to build a great car and have lots of luck on your side as well. 
Yeah, no, people absolutely matter. As much as, you know, you need money wins races in any, you know, era of racing, I think it's safe to say it certainly helps, but people are still um, important today and they were very important in 1967. Like you said earlier, Maurice Petty, Richard Petty, and Dale Inman. And so I do, let's talk hypotheticals for a second, Mm -hmm. but uh, say it's not Dale Inman as the crew chief in 1967. Say it's Anybody else? Do you think there's anybody else out there, maybe maybe close to or around that era that might have been able to achieve similar success uh, with that team? Or do you think it just happened to be those three and there's you couldn't sub any of them out and expect similar results? Um, another great question. I think, um, I think chemistry has a lot to do with having a season like that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, looking way back in the game, Richard Petty, Dale Inman, uh, early in their lives, well, they're cousins for one thing, and then they grew up riding bicycles together and building little wooden carts together and went to high school together, played football together. Wow. Um, basically grew up together, went to high school together and such. And so they knew, they knew each other's mannerisms and uh, what they were thinking. In a lot of those, those cases, of course, growing up with Maurice and, you know, Richard had even told me, he said he thought he was a little tiny bit closer to Dale than he was Maurice as far as knowing what was going to happen on the racetrack or what what types of calls that Maurice would make versus what Dale would make, if, you, if that makes any sense. And mm-hmm. so in the setting of 67, uh, when to pit, when not to pit, tires two or four, uh, those kinds of things, Richard and Mar, I mean, Richard and Dale were very close in their thinking. And so the, I think that had a lot to do with the success of 67 as well. You know, all the factors of, of tires, tracks, uh, and you have to keep in mind too, that, you know, there's a lot of short tracks that aren't on the schedule now. Mm-hmm that were being used then. Darlington Raceway is totally different than what it was then. But see, that's another thing Richard and I talked about in this interview as well. I said, you know, I asked him, why did you win seven Daytona 500s, but you didn't do as well as Charlotte? And that plays into 67 as well. He said, well, I can't, I don't know how to answer that either because you have, that maybe falls into the same category as personality too, because he said, I just loved racing at Daytona, but I never got the hang of Charlotte. In other words, he ran, he won a couple of 600s at Charlotte, but it wasn't really one of his favorite racetracks where Daytona just felt smooth as ice. He could, Mm -hmm. he could win there and he did win there. He won a couple of firecracker 400s, namely his last win his 200th win in 1984, but he won seven Daytona 500s. So I think personality has a lot to do with how well you do at racetracks. And he's, and believe it or not, he has 128 short track race wins of the 200. So he's won a lot on short tracks. So the majority of his wins that year were on short tracks. And so he's a great short, short track racer, but obviously he's great on, uh, on super speedways as well, but the majority have been on short tracks. Mm-hmm. And so back to the original question, I just think the, the chemistry between Dale and Richard had a lot to do with 67. If you put Harry Hyde in that crew, crew chief role with Richard, would they have done as good? Not sure. Um, would, would say a Bobby Isaac and a, and a Harry Hyde in 1967 have done as well or some other season? I think it all, all of that comes down to chemistry. 
between two people, a crew chief mm-hmm. and a and a driver. I really believe that. And uh, the car has a lot to do with it. Uh, I think circumstance has a lot to do with it. Luck has a great deal to do with it. But I, I do think personality and chemistry has a lot to do with the success of it. You know, like a basketball team and a coach, how well they perform. Uh, you know, all that, all those little tiny intricate pieces of the puzzle have a lot to do with all the success, I believe. Yeah. 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 Well, the fact that they, they grew up together, they knew each other their entire lives at that point. Like, I mean, you can't just plug anyone else in there immediately and, and recreate yeah. that kind of relationship. Right. Yeah. You can look at each other sometimes and not, um, and know exactly what you're thinking. Just like when you're married to somebody, <laughs> I mean, you could look at, you know, you don't have to say anything. You just know. And, uh, you know, whether it's going to be a good day or a bad day and, you know, qualifying times and practice times and just that feel, just that, you know, how the weekend is going, how the car unloads, how how that first practice session is going, how that engine is sounding even, um, how the car feels. And, you know, I thought it was interesting that Richard did tell me that, you know, for two or three races, at the start of the season, <clears throat> excuse me, that 67 Plymouth didn't feel right. And I said, well, what didn't feel right about it? He said, it's a deal where the car, it would go in the turns a certain way and it just didn't feel, it didn't glide in the turns. It didn't, hmm. I didn't feel comfortable in the turns. It, you know, it just didn't, I didn't feel like I could drift it anywhere I want to put it. You know what I mean? Where I got back in that 66 car. And it's, it's almost like when you buy a car off the lot and it just has that smooth feel to you and you feel great about the purchase. Yeah. Where you got another car is like, eh, I don't know about this. I don't know if I, I like, I want to take this one back because I can't tell you why. I just want to, I don't feel right in this car. Same thing with the race car. When a driver gets in a car and he says, I just really like the way this thing feels. Well, that's the same with what Richard told me. He said that 67 just didn't have that smoothness about it. Where the 66, even though it didn't win as much in 66, it felt better than what they had produced for 67. So, so let's just run this one, put that one in the corner. That one doesn't have the personality that the 66 does. Let's just try it. Well, by trying it, they ended up winning a boatload of races with it and a phenomenal amount of races with it. And they just keep trying. Let's go to the next one. Well, let's go to the next one. Well, let's go to the next one. And the next one and the next one and the next one ended up being wins. And they just kept trying it, holding their breath and trying another and another and another. And by the end of the year, they had a phenomenal year. Yeah, I don't have the numbers pulled up in front of me, um, but I don't. he obviously won less races in 1966 in that same car, at least for many of them. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm curious, what did they do with the 1967 car after those first few races? Like, I, I know you talked about they put um, a lot of 67 elements into the 66 car. Do you think that's what made the 66 car better that year? Or, I, I don't know, I guess there's a lot of questions here, but I wonder now, like the lost car, that, that car that started the yeah. season and, and got benched, what happened to that car? That's a car I, like I'd like to see as much as I'd like to see the car that won all yeah. the races. And I, I have a theory. I don't know this, but I'm betting, I bet you a $100 bill. The, the, the Petties would often run, say, a Jim Pascal in a 41 car mm-hmm. and maybe uh, a Tiny Lund in a 42 car and Richard in a 43 car, that kind of thing. And they probably just put it, put Jim Pascal or Tiny Lund in it and ran yeah. it somewhere else on a short track. 
it was just you know and it could have been a great feel for tiny or jim but it wasn't a good good feel for richard I, I i bet you a bunch of money that's probably what they did with it and they would a lot of times they would run different cars or let me say this way more cars at short tracks and uh, and there's times that richard ran a number 41 and a 42 at, at times uh most the majority in the 43 but sometimes he'd hop in those other cars and and just a little more info in 66 they won eight races uh in in the 66 this wasn't a phenomenal super big year under petty terms you know but um yeah i, I have a feeling that's what they did they just probably just stuck uh Jim Pascal in in because he ran forty two and sixty four and won the World Six Hundred at Charlotte uh, in nineteen sixty four running a forty two Petty Enterprises car. So I was curious. So I just now pulled up the the you know stats and standings for the nineteen sixty seven season because I was curious. Tiny Lund uh, did run nineteen races that year, didn't win any. Um, so mm-hmm. you never know, that might be where the car went. Or uh, you mentioned Jim uh, Pascal, he won four races that year and actually finished sixth in the standings. So yeah. maybe it'd be really cool if there are some super sleuths out there. If there's a way to find out where the the benched nineteen sixty seven car went, but if it went to Jim, it, it might have found victory lane a couple of times that year. Yeah. So maybe it has a happy ending after all. It could have. And, you know, Jim might have walked in the door that day and said, Dale Lerman, that's the greatest car I've ever had in my life. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. And he said he might have said, good for you, buddy, because it sure didn't work for the king. So, yeah. and by the way, that's where the king uh, moniker came from, from the 67 season. Oh, there really? A, yeah. A gentleman by the name of Benny Phillips, who has passed away sadly now, but he wrote for the High Point Enterprise newspaper. And he used that uh, name in one of his articles and said, well, Richard Petty's the king of stock car racing, and that's how it stuck. Hmm. And that's the home paper for Petty Enterprises is the High Point Enterprise. And so Benny, uh, great guy. He was a great writer. Uh, Like I said, sadly, he's passed away now. But that's where the, the king moniker came from was just some articles that Benny had been writing because of that 67 season. And he definitely was the king because nobody could keep up with you know, 27 wins and 10 in a row that year, as you pointed out, I think, but you know, Bobby Allison won, what did what'd you say? Six that year. Yeah. And he was, was like setting the world on fire. He, you know, Richard Buzz, I mean, nobody could keep up with him. And I'm sure people were protesting at some races left and right. And NASCAR said, there's nothing wrong with the car. They're just that good. And, you know, NASCAR was looking at that car with a fine tooth comb and taking out gas tanks and putting them back in or gas fuel cells. And uh, because by then they were running the fuel cell after what happened to Fireball Roberts in 64 at Charlotte, mm-hmm. the, the terrible crash she suffered. And yeah. they were tearing those cars apart looking for something and they never found it because there was nothing there. It was just that the car was that good. And uh, they were just, you know, And but the part, I've said it before in this podcast, but the part that just it amazes me is if you ask Dale or Richard, and Maurice sadly has passed away now, but if you really pinned them down and said, why were you so good? They can't tell you. They're just like, we don't know why. It, we can't put our finger on why. Everything just came together the way it should have, and we're very thankful for it and blessed to have it. But we, if you ask us honestly to come to some answer, I guess if you really pinned them down, it would have been preparation of the car. It just, you know, great driver, uh, great crew chief, great engine builder, like I said before, because they, there was no mat and there's nothing on paper. 
there was no engineer engineering feat. And by the way, they really had no engineers in those days either. Mm -hmm. That's another amazing part of the story. We've got, you know, tons of engineers now, but those engineers in those days were the guys who drove the, the trains on the tracks. They had, you know, they had no engineers in racing. They didn't have any. Yeah. And, uh, they just, they were seat of the pants drivers, uh, awesome shade tree type mechanics. They, they just were so good at what they did. Matter of fact, the shade tree guys would go up to Detroit when they, when Detroit couldn't figure it out and they would go up there and show them what to do and amaze the guys who had four year degrees in engineering because they were just that good and really surprising, but they, they were, they were that good as far as guys who could build race cars. Yeah, you wonder if um, you know the Petties and if Dale Emmett had had been able to like put their finger on exactly what brought them all that success. Uh, Richard Petty may have won three or four hundred races in his career yeah. if he kept up at that, yeah. that race. Well, well, you know the funny the funny thing that uh, Richard and Dale both joke about. Richard, I mean, he said many times, "I would have won four hundred races if Dale or I mean Dale Edmund had not been my crew chief." You know, so <laughs> just joking with each other. <laughs> And they, they pick and cut up all the time. They're very best friends, even though they're cousins. They're more like brothers than cousins, but they're all the time picking on each other. But he often says, yeah, if I'd won 400 races, if he hadn't been my crew chief. So, you know, just joking all the time. They love each other to death. They're great guys. Great story. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't want to dig too deep into the numbers and stats. It can get real just jargony really fast. But right. you mentioned earlier Petty's average finish that year was 5.0. Uh, I pulled up the standings here. And James Hilton, Dick Hutcherson, they finished second and third in the standings that year. Um, their average finishes were both in the mid-eights. Um, and yeah. I, I don't remember. Maybe you remember exactly. But the the way the points were formatted that year, Richard Petty finished the season with over 42,000 points yeah. and won the standing or won the championship by more than six thousand points so was this back when like earnings were still factored into the points as well like is that that's a, like, i don't remember this format well, that's crazy numbers well yeah and see i mean i'm being facetious when i say this but basically you know in those days if you had a pulse you had a point if, if you had a grandmother <laughs> you had a point i mean it was i probably had a point were, i didn't even realize it <laughs> yeah no you had a point let a lap uh, somewhere you know, yeah, if you if you stared at a pine tree, you had a point. I mean, it's one of those deals. It was so crazy. I think some of it, some years, if you completed points, or excuse me, I'm sorry, if you completed laps, you that you points. were the champion. Benny Parsons won that by in 1973 by the number of laps he completed. And okay, all well and good. Um, it, they have they've had so many crazy ways of doing point standings over the years and you know by somebody wins it by 6,332.87 points it's like <laughs> what is that <laughs> you know i mean i don't know how to did it in 67 to be honest with you but it was uh, it was it was too many I, I can tell you that much it was it was just nuts the way they came up with it i don't know what the exact plan was but Fortunately, maybe now we have it a lot more simplified, but uh, no kidding, Eric, First, it was this way one year, and they do it three or four years that way, and they would another some kind of crazy other way, and, um, you know. They, they still I mean, do that you, to this day. I mean, it feels like we yeah, change formats I mean, every few years. You know, I've always said if you win, you know, if you win a race and there are 33 cars in the field, you got 33 points, right? I mean, that made the most <laughs> sense, but, I mean, they the, over the years it's been very convoluted and very weird and very strange 
And I think 67 was one of those years when you had 6,000 points between you and second place. I mean, there's, I don't know. I don't get it. But if you, but again, if you won 27 races and the next guy won five or six or eight, obviously you should be the champion, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, you knew he's going to be the champion. But I, I honestly have to tell you, I don't know how they did the points there. <laughs> yeah, I was, was trying to, but figure it was out. way out there. I can tell you that it was like Mars material. It was like psh, way out there. Yeah, I was, they did it. I was about to get my calculator out and try to figure it out myself, try to find the pattern. But uh, but, but he was the champion, of course. Um, and I thought it was interesting because he won this championship sort of sandwiched right in between a, a bunch of David Pearson championships. He won in '66 uh, and '68 and '69, I believe. And he mm-hmm. raced. Uh, I think I, I looked up. He raced uh 20 or 21 times in the 67 season won a couple races so richard petty was going up against some of the best competition at the time um <laughs> that season we mentioned bobby allison um and and i think hill yarbrough made a good number of starts so there are many other yes. drivers that year who were still very much competitive but richard petty and that 43 team they just they hit on it and, and so uh, we've used a lot of words to describe it. it it's difficult to describe even those involved have a hard time describing it but i think it was obviously a magical season and and i want to ask you this ben do you do you think we'll ever see and maybe 30 years from now maybe nascar looks completely different maybe they're flying cars in 30 years who knows but do you think we'll <laughs> ever see a driver win more than half the races uh, on the schedule ever again i don't think so really um and i'll say this and i say this with all due respect to everyone racing in 67 again you only had about eight or ten cars really legitimately that were in win material winning winning cars in that era really you did and no disrespect to any of the guys that weren't but i i don't think you would have that kind of season in my opinion because it was a magical year for the petties uh, a different era of racing a different era of car uh you know there were some of the top teams were the ones that were getting uh, factory support and when i say that i'm talking about uh, money from general motors money from ford money from chrysler the top three at the time the big three and they wanted to showcase the very best of their cars so the old sell on went on sunday sell on monday that they really played up in those decades the 50s 60s and 70s uh and that's what they wanted now the the top cars of the that time that were being supported by the top three they would pass down their parts to some of those mid-pack teams sometimes they would have the mid-pack teams test those parts for some of the top teams but Mm -hmm. no to answer your question i don't see it but you know in 30 years i'll be 91 (laughs) <laughs> and uh, might still be here to see that but we'll be in my predictions we'll be driving cars that are battery powered and not fuel powered and they might be slightly off the ground and they might look like spaceships and <laughs> who knows we you know you get in from the top instead of the side you teleport into it yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know we never know and my grandson is named rex white and they might be the second rex white to win a championship so who knows i mean no, nothing's nice. impossible i'm an optimist and i hope i hope to be here to see it and i might fall in love with it so we'll see how it goes battery powered spaceship race i think i've played a video game like that at some point or another so uh we might see that turn into to reality someday but yeah uh, for sure yeah, yeah it was a remarkable season i don't know if you have any final thoughts i think it's really interesting since you did speak to richard petty recently um you know just hearing his perspective yeah. all these years 
years late later trying to remember back to that crazy crazy season like do you get the impression he still remembers it really well like is this one of the yeah. seasons he just he, he can narrow in on this season better than maybe any others yeah he does and as i said in my lead in to this podcast if you want to make richard petty smile with that big toothy beautiful grin of his <laughs> just say 67 and he he grins really big it's one of his i know it has to be his favorite season but i want to say this about richard petty you know the man has won seven championships 200 races seven daytona 500s and i have never in my life met someone more personable mm-hmm. who should be you know i mean he is the greatest superstar race car driver on earth and he he is so so down to earth i admire the man beyond description because he treated me you know with red carpet it was just the two of us sitting in a conference room no pr people or nothing flipped on the light he was signing a few cards uh, for some folks and i just was so amazed i've known him for many years i've known him for 40 years but you know he treated me like gold and just like the best two friends sitting around on the port swing talking and just having a good visit and had a recorder going ask him some great great questions and if you just want to read that at q a look at the latest issue of pole position magazine I mean, I really enjoy talking to him, and he's just so down to earth, and just can't can't say enough great about the man. He's he's a wonderful friend and gentleman, and if every superstar of any kind could be as good as him, then this world will be a better place. I can tell you that. Absolutely, yeah. I, I've only I, I met him a few years ago as a fan. I got a photo with him at a, I think Auto Club Speedway, and I, I was just amazed. And I'm still young. I haven't been around super long. I haven't met a ton of drivers, especially not many legends like Richard Petty. Obviously, nobody really measures up to Richard Petty in NASCAR today. But I was just shocked by how um, outgoing he still is to this day. He's at the track many times a year he's still more than happy to sign i mean you even said there you're interviewing him he's still signing things for fans he's still yeah. doing stuff taking photos with fans hosting q a's i see him out at the chevy display you know outside the track some weeks before the before the cup race he is still very much involved um in growing the sport today and continuing to cultivate relationships with fans and mm-hmm. you know some of that is he's still invested in a race team he still has you know a brand to sell he is still his fingerprints are all over the competition side of NASCAR still to this day but I think another part of it is he is just that genuine he loves racing he loves people who love racing and uh yeah it's really cool to hear you talk about him recently still being uh still being the Richard Petty I think fans for decades have always come to know and love so that's awesome yeah it's just a wonderful person I mean I just can't say enough good about him he's just kind loving gentle and you think this man made his living going 200 miles an hour and he just doesn't fit that mold at all. He just, but a superstar. And I wish I say it honestly, I wish, you know, we, we see superstars on TV and all that stuff. And we hear about all these people all the time in trouble of some type nature. And it's, if you could just pattern yourself after the guy, he's never in trouble. He's just super nice guy to everybody he comes in contact with. Mm-hmm. Just be like him. Yeah. Just pattern yourself after this guy. If you're going to be a superstar and a role model, the young children just be like this guy and you got it made just i just can't say enough good about the guy he's he's a great role model to young people he really is he makes it look easy i i second that i agree 
Um, well, this has been a great discussion about Richard Petty and his 1967 championship season. Uh, the, the Probably the best season any drivers had in NASCAR ever will likely never be replicated. But uh, since it is episode 67, and I know you and Jerry do this every week, Ben, we always you always talk about um, the car number associated with the number episode. So I think we could touch on this real quick. The number 67 has actually never won a NASCAR Cup Series race. I was looking this up. Um, Buddy Arrington made the most starts by far in the Cup Series uh, in the 67. Even David Pearson, who mentioned him earlier, I didn't know this, made uh, 31 starts in the 67 uh, as well. And uh, the last driver to race the 67 in Cup, I believe, was Boris Said uh, 20 years ago. Back in 2002, he made a couple of starts. I don't remember them specifically, probably a couple of road course races. Um, The 67, though, may be more known amongst... uh, at least younger fans, at least today, as the car number Jeff Gordon got his official NASCAR start in. In 1990 at Rockingham, he made his NASCAR debut in the Bush Grand National Series at the time uh, in the 67, the Outback Steakhouse car. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was reading about that race uh, recently. Uh, he qualified great. He qualified second. He was on the front row. His race was cut short by uh, by a crash, I believe, 20 or 30 laps into the race. So he didn't finish the race, unfortunately. He finished 39th. But he said afterwards that that was kind of the race that got, that you know, kind of led to many of his obviously future NASCAR Cup Series opportunities. A lot of team owners uh, calling him especially impressed by his qualifying effort, able to move that car uh, onto the front row. So even though he crashed out, Jeff Gordon was able to kind of make a name for himself. So uh, yeah. a lot of fans remember that Outback Steakhouse car. What do you remember about that that start? Well, I, I just, yeah, I just remember it was, uh, I believe, a solid white car with red numbers. And, yeah, it was uh, pretty simple. He, yeah, very simple. He, he uh yeah, as you said, he started at Rockingham. He only ran 33 of 197 laps. Um, but, uh, yeah, and Hugh Connerty was the team owner, by the way, of that car. But you know what was interesting very quickly about Jeff uh, in conversations with him recently, he was telling me, and I've said this before on the podcast, but he had no desire to drive a stock car whatsoever. He mm-hmm. wanted to be an IndyCar driver. And he wanted to uh, win the Indy 500. And, I, you know, as fate would have it, he went the other direction and, and got in a stock car uh, at Rockingham in a Buck Baker driving school. And Ray Evernham went with him before all this Hendrick stuff started. And he said, you know, not, this is not a bad idea. I might want to go stock car racing. And as, as they say, the rest is history. But, I mean, he really, he and Ricky Rudd and Jimmy Johnson, all three, wanted to go Indy car racing. And, Again, as fate would have it, they went to stock cars in NASCAR and made their own uh, way in, in the heavier stock cars. But I just thought that was very interesting that, you know, he grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, sorry, Pittsburgh, Indiana, my apologies, and uh, uh, passed by the Indianapolis Motor Speedway every day going to school and it was like Indy, Indy, Indy. And he did win at Indy uh, several times at the Brickyard 400, but it wasn't in an Indy car. It's just interesting how fate would have it and how life changes the way you do things sometimes and uh i just think that's interesting that he could have very easily gone to indy cars and we'd have never known how he could do a stock car just but it all started with that number 67 car there and and uh 
and you never know. He might have said, I hate stock cars. I'm going to go. I don't want to drive another one as long as I live. <laughs> so you never know. <laughs> yeah, no, fate is an interesting thing. And, and you mentioned Ray Abraham. He was actually uh, his crew chief for that 1990 uh, Xfinity Bush yeah. Series start in the Outback Steakhouse car. Uh, I know that's a, a kind of a favorite uh, memory among Jeff Gordon fans, just kind of a, a, a fun fact. Everyone pictures him in the rainbow or the flames 24. Mm-hmm. But no, Jeff Gordon, the rainbow warrior, got his NASCAR start in basically a plain white car, uh, Outback Steakhouse. I, sure did. Who doesn't love a good steakhouse? They closed the there Outback Steakhouse by me not that long ago. It's kind of a bummer, um, but <laughs> it's, okay. it's going. I'm just throwing that in, throwing in a little tidbit in there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, well, that's the number 67. It's history um, in NASCAR in a nutshell. I, I don't know if anyone will ever win in the 67. It's kind of an off-the-beaten-path number. It's not 1 through 10. It's not It's not anything that anyone really thinks about. But uh, maybe someday the 67 will, will catch its big break in the NASCAR Cup Series. Um, well, Ben, this has been a, a great time. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. Let me fill in for yes, Jerry sir. this week. Uh, I know Pleasure next to week, have you. I know next week y'all have a, a fantastic episode planned as always. Um, but any final thoughts here as we begin to wrap up this uh, this fun kind of lost number 67 episode? Uh, just that it's, it's interesting that uh, it was a great season for the Petties and something always fun to talk about. And uh, who knows, maybe someday we'll have another great season by some young rookie that comes in and sets the world on fire like the Petties did. And it'd be great to see history repeat itself someday. Yeah, I, I can only imagine how fans today would react if a driver won you know, more than half the races. Fans Probably say they love well. Petty. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd be curious what the fans in the 60s were saying about Petty. I'm sure he was a, a hit, a favorite, but some people had to have gotten a little burnt out by it right yeah they probably were after 27 <laughs> wins it's like they probably didn't want to go see something else yeah for sure but uh yeah and you're right so you know i remember back in 1998 when jeff gordon won 13 yeah uh the t-shirts were popping out saying anybody but gordon i yep. remember that so i don't know if they could survive 27 <laughs> that was 13 i don't know if we could do 27 that a different time different era and back in the days when they're running two and three races a week, you know, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday kind of thing. And then the big race was on Sunday. So, yeah, might be a little hard to endure 27 wins in one season by one driver. That may be a little tough. And I know NASCAR would be really going over these cars if somebody was winning that many this this day. I think even fans would get tired of Chase Elliott if it was him winning all those races these days. You know, five or six in a row might get some people kind of kind of miffed. So it start turning for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for having me on, Ben. It's been so great so to be a part of you. Great to be a part of a lifetime of NASCAR. Always a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next time on a lifetime in NASCAR.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.